Hi, everyone. Welcome to Office Hours. If you're watching on YouTube, you can find out more about what we do at officehours.global. Our first hour is general discussion about media production. And our second hour is usually something we want to spend a little bit more time on. And today, Nick Justin is going to be joining us and he's going to be talking about photogrammetry, LIDAR, and Unreal Engine. So how do we take things in the real world and put them into Unreal? So it's going to be a really good second hour. I'm really excited to have Nick here. Uh, Also, if you are listening on our radio app, thanks. Enjoy. Uh, if you don't know what the radio app is, you can go to Discord. Um, and uh, in Discord, uh, under the Alex announcements, there's a link to the test um, to the test flight of, of it. It's only on the iPhone right now, but it'll be a more available in the future. But right now it's on iPhone. So you can find that in Discord. Um, if you are, uh, if you don't, aren't in Discord, you can find it on the email that we send out. And if you're not in the email that we send out, then you can go to officehours.global. <laughs> Sign up. So, so those are the, that's the string to get to the radio app. But we think that the radio app is pretty exciting and um, we're pretty excited about doing it. Let's go ahead and jump into the questions. Mitch, what do we got? First one up from Paul Wallace in Austin, Texas. The Opal webcam claims to be, quote, the first professional webcam, unquote, and is paired with Opal Composer, mic mesh for audio. Curly cable, $250. Is the claim justified? Go ahead, Courtney. Uh, no. Uh, it claims to be a professional camera. It's a little webcam with a little lens. And uh, I looked at the specs here. Uh, the sensor is okay. I think you have to use it with their uh, uh, composer, which is their uh, computational photography uh, 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 program that goes along that it pairs with. It only has USB-C out as a... Um, webcam and uh, no HDMI out. It has this, all these little holes on the front here are uh, a microphone mesh. I think it has three microphones behind that mesh, not, you know, 20, whatever you think it is. And when you get down to the, uh, where, where was it? Uh, um, anyway, I was looking at the uh, specs on the uh, microphones and the audio range was 100 to 10,000 hertz. So it doesn't even go above 10,000 hertz on its audio, which is going to make dialogue nice and clear, but it's not going to hear it'll a lot it, of everything It'll make it else. clear, but it doesn't, there's a certain air to things and, and, a, yeah, and, a, and a resonance that you, that you get above yeah. 10,000 that, that I feel like you lose when, you, when, you, uh, when they cut it off. Yeah, go ahead, Paul. Yeah, it's why do you put a big curly cord right at the back of the microphone that's going to uh, weight it down? And it I, I don't think their claim is justified. I no. looked at that and I agree with Courtney. I think that the other thing is, to me, the, I mean, we, I have bought many, many Brios, but to me, it's now a, basically between the Insta360 link and the OBSBOT Tiny 2. Those are the two. It, once you pass those, you go to a Super 35 APS sensor, you know, so that, that can be what Courtney's using or what I'm using or, you know, or what Chris is using or what John's using or all of us, except, well, I don't know what you're using, Paul. I think all of us are in some kind of APS side. So anyway, so that's the, um, uh, so yeah, I don't think it's, uh, uh, I don't, I, I think that those are the two right now. Like we, we will watch. I wish that those two, OBSBOT and uh, Insta360 could really take a lot of ground if they put an HDMI output, you know, that turned these things in and made the sensor just a little bigger. So they, and I think they could go, I do think that once they get to $500, they start competing with APS 
um, cameras, but at, at $400 with an HDMI and a slightly larger sensor, they could like a one, inch, even a one inch sensor, um, which Sony makes, you know, the old, the, Sony's been making this one inch sensor for a long time, get an umbrella, um, you know, processor for it and you'd end up with a, with a great camera and it would still fit into that price point with the HDMI. Um, yeah, go ahead, Courtney. Yeah, and with the DSLRs, you get a if you can get a kit lens, you'll have a, a mini zoom on there, so you have some adjustability without compromising your uh, resolution. Because mm-hmm. these all these little webcams that claim to be professional have a 4K sensor and they output 1080, and they do a zoom and focus basically by taking a, a smaller portion. Well, I don't think of the sensor. I think the link the link and the Obsbot have optical zoom built into them. I believe I, no, maybe not the link, but I think the Obsbot might not the link. So. Yeah, I have a link. It's, yeah, it's 4K sensor. Yeah. yeah, and the but, microphone is so far away. Don't you know? Don't, I've been like I've been being have trained mics. on office hours to to yeah. close talk the mic. Like stop listening to anybody who has has uh, microphones in their in their webcam. Don't do that. Don't like like just get a microphone for the microphone. Like it's not like you know good enough is the you know some people say good enough is the enemy of of, of great. I say it's the enemy of humanity. Um, anyway, go ahead, Mitchell. I'm still looking for the connection between the quote, uh, the first professional webcam yeah. and the device. What are they saying? The sound, the picture, the quality, know, the cost? They, they sat around, they sat around in a, in a, in a you know, a table and they were like, what can we call this? Well, well they say yeah. it's, it's less than 2% plastic. And I think that oh, there we go. Plastic, that percentage of plastic is the lens. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Next question. And it's from Chris Widener in Lafayette, Indiana, asking, Rode Wireless Pro, worthwhile upgrade or yet another new device we don't need? Thoughts? Is time code really critical for that many workflows? So, so one of the interesting things about this Rode is that it records locally as well. So I, I assume that they're paying the, 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 the price to Zaxcom or whatever so that they can do that. And, um, and so I think Rode now does it. I think DJI is now doing it. I think that um, Deity Mics, I believe, has a, has a local record, which is... These are super powerful, um, you know, so, but it really becomes more important. I'm sure the reason they put it into timecode is that that people who are creators who are starting to use these were like, it's really hard to line this all up later. <laughs> and they were like, well, we can make it easier if we just, if we sync it to timecode. Um, what, what happens is that, and, and again, if you're not very good at it too, it becomes hard to get the sync just right. Um, if you've done, I, I spent five years only doing production without time code. And so it was like, we just got really good at lining it up. Like, you know, and we would, um, you know, have people clap at the beginning and do other things. And we would just, at, at some point, you could just line it up and just kind of figure it out, you know. Um, but, but I think that it does make it faster and easier to have time code by a lot. And, it, and especially if you've got a bunch of these mics or a bunch of tracks, so much easier to have time codes. So if you're doing a lot of this, it really makes it is worth it. Um, the other thing that the double the, the the thing that's the most important is that 32 bit um, the 32 bit local record because what that means is that I mean you're in the field, you're a creator, you're not this is you're not you don't have a sound person, um, and you're being able to clip this thing on and be able to get something if things got a little too loud or a little too soft or whatever. You've got tons of data there to grab onto. Now that doesn't mean everything will work. You have a signal to noise ratio you're still working on. I think this one's in the mid 70s, um, so it's not quite as good as what you'll see in some of the preamps and other mics that that you would have at a professional level. But it's it's good, um, and the. So the thing is, is that these, and what I did notice when I was looking at this is they have a headset mic now that's built for this. So it's a headset mic that is actually built for, the, for that, for that um, uh, Go. And it's about 300 bucks. Um, but, it, but that's the first one I've seen that, you know, for this. You know, we've been using cheap headset mics 
you know, because there was basically there was the the DPAs and the and the uh, countrymen, and then it just dropped off really quickly to like Pol- Poland, Poland, whatever that we really got. And it and so there's a three hundred dollar headset mic that could be reasonably good, especially if you are, um, you know, you're a trainer or you're doing yoga or you're doing other th- or cook, you know, that kind of thing. Having that little headset mic would really could make a huge difference. And so, so I'm really curious about that um, as it relates to this. The um, so I think it's a really interesting puzzle. But the reason that that local record is important is like, let's say you're walking through a crowd. You see this a lot. You do a local record of the person. They're walking through a crowd. They're 50 feet off. There may be breakup coming in, you know, to the camera. But you have, but now you have that local record. You resync it and it, and it, you know, all comes back together. So um, it's a pretty cool setup. Yeah, go ahead, Chris. I was going to say, one of the things that is super interesting is as the, as our, industry advances, a lot of the like uh, foreknowledge and problem solving that we relied on in the past becomes superfluous. And any of these new digital mics that digitally connect, like, you know, I'm looking at the web page with people just a single digital cable into a phone or something like that. Think about all of the stuff that you don't have to worry about in terms of like gain structures, like it's the output of this transmitter, the right impedance and gain going into the pre blah, blah, Yeah, blah. but it's will, just, it's there. I will say though, that as an, as, you know, watching this, there's so many, uh, what I would call ball handling skills that we learned, you know, on in many places that, that, that when you don't learn those, you just do a lot of things that you still end up with all the good things that you have now, you still end up in a hole because you, you know, there's just things that just made that work better. And so like, you know, things that are okay quality, now you're fixing them and you don't know why, you know, and, and like, I, I look at this as a, like when I, this is a graphics day and I look at this as, you know, when I, when I do 3D, when I work with 3D artists now that just came out of school, like they have no sense of how, like, they'll be like, well, I was rendering for four hours this afternoon. I'm like, you do not render during the day. <laughs> that, that's what you do at night. You know, like, like you know, like, it's a, you know, like, like why would you said do that? that? To, I think you've said that to me, Alex. You do not render in the middle of the day. You know, you, you render it, you, you, you build your 3D models, you do little tests, you do little animations, you do little, little postage stamps, everything else. You think you got it going and then you, you punch it out and you go to lunch or you punch it out and you go to go home. But you don't like waste your day rendering, you know? And so, um, so anyway, so I think that that's the... Um, but I think in the same case with audio and video, I see a lot of folks that got started that didn't go through 10 years of doing something. And they just, there's just so many, you know, lazy, which is the, the exact opposite of what we see in sports. I was just watching somebody um, run yesterday and I was thinking about like, I remember like looking at people run in the 30s, you know, in the Olympics. And this was like a high school track meet or something that just came up on YouTube or something like that. And I, I realized that high schooler that's not even making state could outrun the Olympic runners, you know, um, you know, 80 years ago, like by a lot. And, and it's, and it's because of technique. It's because they understand technique. They have video analysis. Some of them in college, they have motion capture analysis. And we kind of, I kind of feel like we're going the opposite direction where we just get, keep on getting lazier, not, not, not better, you know, and not really paying attention to those things. So hopefully we can keep on. It's that whole thing about, you know, when you, and and this is a phrase that I, Coined, coined this phrase this morning. If you give everybody a hammer, you're going to have a lot of sore thumbs, you know? And and as we make the tools more accessible to more people, two things are going to happen. One, one, you get more stories. Some of them are going to be really great. 
And two, you get more stories. Some of them are going to be really, and, really bad. And you see this when, when, when Photoshop came out. I mean, there was a lot, like the Cytex operators had the same op thing that I had, which was the Cytex operators are like, oh, we had to go to school for this and we had to learn all this stuff and everything else. Yeah. And these little, I, was, I came into Prime Sports Network, I paid $350 an hour to do ads <laughs> in Photoshop. I got, well, I got hired to do other things, but, but I got hired to like send out letters that said, you win. Um, and I turned it into a, a Photoshop job. But, um, but the... Uh, but I sent, you know, I, I printed a whole ad at pure black because I didn't understand what dot gain was, um, you know, in Albuquerque, New Mexico. And, um, and uh, I still remember that. But, but the, uh, um, so I think that, but I think that all of us can keep on thinking about, and it's one of the reasons this show is, we have this show, is so that we can keep on talking about some of the, the underlying principles, you know, that are going on so that when people are learning, they can be also deepening that understanding of why they're doing those things and why, why it matters. So we're looking at new stuff, but we're also like trying to fill in all those gaps because those gaps are really hard to find. I mean, usually if they're, if you find them on YouTube and they're actually there, they're usually spread out between, you know, 30 requests for subscriptions and, you know, a long open that takes like four minutes and, you know, we just, it's just hard to find the information. Go ahead, Mitchell. Uh, back to the Rode Wireless uh, Pro. I think it's the third version <laughs> of the of that microphone or uh, wireless microphone. Here's what it comes down to. It comes down to how does it sound? How does it sound using their microphones and their device and their recorder? Well, you don't have to use their microphones, and, though. You can use other microphones. But I'm microphones just saying, how does it sound with this particular package? I, and if it sounds great, then then it's a, it's a nice mean, box. But if it sounds horrible... There's an to, issue. To go back to the, the the issue, though, is that to go back to that, it looks ugly. Like they keep on showing people clipping it on. And you see people do this. You see them take the roads and they just clip them onto their, their shirt. And you're like, wow, is that ugly? Especially that big road zero thing on it. You're just like, really? That, that you, you want to like, and you'll see videos like with millions of views. And you're like, that's what you chose to do. You know, really? Um, you know, <laughs> NASA, man. Anyway, so, so the, um, and, uh, so the clipping on thing, and it doesn't sound very good when you clip it on, in my opinion. And then the, um, but the, yeah, so I mean, and I think that the, I think that when you put a good mic on it, it actually sounds reasonably good. But I think that you need to do that. I'm super interested in the road with the headset as kind of like the cooking kit. You know, you give somebody, we're always looking at how to build this cooking kit. Eventually, we're gonna, you're going to see us do tons of cooking. Um, but, but the idea, though, is having this little road that you pop in, that you can pop on and have a headset would make a big difference. I go to Courtney. Uh, yeah, I'm looking at it. I I don't like this. Like you say, it's the size of the cases haven't changed. In fact, I, I think they look a little bigger. They do provide it with these two microphones, which normally sell for about 100 bucks a piece. Although the total package is about three ninety nine, and it and having to do with the thirty two bit, thirty two bit is recording. I'm not sure what it's transmitting though. What the receiver is. Oh no, it's sending. not transmitting that. It's transmitting something else. It's just that's just the yeah. sync track at that point. Like you're just you're just using that to check things on your ca camera. No, no, thirty two bit recording, not the time code. I'm, I'll talk no. about the time code in a second. You probably have to jam it. Uh, you have to use Road Central, is what they say. So you can't do any of the settings on the device itself. How you do have you to jam it, it to the to, camera? You have to hook okay, Well, this is my question: is that Road Central may just be pulling um, uh, time of day off the internet or something? And time of day is not time code. Uh, it is time code. It's real time time code, but most time codes twenty nine nine seven, so it's fifty nine nine four time base instead of sixty. So it won't stay in sync uh, if you're using Unless real time. Unless it's drop frame. Right, yeah, or drop, unless you're using 
time uh, twenty nine ninety seven drop frame, which right. is normally which is not typically used in production. In, in, uh, in normally live, not used in production. So this, in live production, yes. Live production, but not in recorded production. Yeah, here so if you go. If you're doing a multi camera. Recorded oh, the whole idea. Well, live production. You're not going to use the time code because you're not doing post. <laughs> we get, so, we get all this, so there. The, we get uh, all this, we you don't need the time code. It's live. This is a huge anyway. discussion. Every production we do, if you have a bunch of film folks, we end up with this thing where the live folks are going, "We're using time of day drop frame," and they're like. <gasps> You can't do that. And we're like, yeah, we can. Because <laughs> so, so, yeah, it's the only way to keep the time in sync. All right. Yeah. Next, and by the way, we're not Anyway, any, I like the it, size of the DJIs better because they're smaller. Yeah. Did they do 32 bits? Yeah. And they oh. do 32-bit internal recording too. And so they're... I really... Size. I have to say DJI is hitting on all cylinders right now. When you look at what everything that they release, you're just like, whoa. Um, next question. Um, I read in uh, 30 frames, just so you know. Kyle Hammond in uh, Chicago, Illinois, asking, is Zoom or any Zoom apps able to send live captioning as a separate feed? Um, no, I don't think it does. I think it, it outputs in its own little window. And I, I don't know if Zoom OSC is capable of, of doing that, uh, of grabbing that data. I don't know if it has that data. It, I feel like it should. And if not, we should request it because if you're able to get the, that data out, then you could deliver it to another, to something else. Now that window, we've done stuff with other things like Bing, not Bing, but, um, team, Skype for Business, I think, was what we actually were using. And um, so Skype for Business and for, and Google Meet have great, you know, uh, translation and, uh, and captioning that are built into the apps. And so in a pinch, we've actually taken those and just windowed them and keyed them over what we needed to do. But getting the raw text out has not been something we were able to do. Um, it's there. It's floating around in that app as raw text. The question is, is whether you can get it out. And the only way I would think that it would work would probably be Zoom OSC. Um, but I don't know if it supports that or not because we haven't needed to do that. Usually we do that as a whole separate process, um, you know, to keep it so that we have more control over it. Um, next question. And we have a softball comment from John Preto in Las Vegas asking, problem solved with Blackmagic Design Da Vinci yesterday. I'll share. Mr. Preto? Posted the question on Sunday, and Alex said, you'll solve this over the next couple of days. I solved it with the help of See? the Blackmagic Forums. And you're going to laugh when I tell you what it was. What, can uh, you explain what the issue was? <laughs> yeah. So um, I was trying to record voiceovers into, into, into Da Vinci using Fairlight. Mm -hmm. And the mic would not arm. None of my inputs would arm into Blackmagic, into Fairlight, so I could do voiceovers. And what did it turn out to be? It wasn't any conflict with Ace or Soundesk or anything else. No it was the security settings in, in Mac OS. You have to turn the microphone on in the security settings. You had to go to Resolve in the security settings and say, this can use my mic. Exactly. Oh, man. Well, that's a good one. It's a good one. To, that'll, that, that, um, so that will save somebody else a lot of time. <laughs> Thank you. Thanks for coming back with that. Uh, next question. Uh, Mr. Paul Wallace in Austin, Texas, and right here on our panel, Zoom shares rose as much as 8% in extended trading on Monday after the video calling software provider announced fiscal second quarter results that exceeded analyst expectations. Revenue, $114 billion versus $112 billion expected by analysts. Comments? Go ahead, John. So Zoom's financials look strong. Unfortunately, Wall Street's not <clears throat> not uh, supporting them at their time. Their, their market cap now is the same as it was pre-pandemic. But their financials are strong. Their market cap now is about $20 billion. They could be acquired at that 
price level. So we'll see what happens. But their financials are strong right now. Go ahead, Paul. Yeah, they, you know, they look pretty strong, but they, they I think there was about a 3% adjustment today. And I was trying to make sense out of the Motley Fool reading what they thought of the situation. They always take me down this rabbit hole. When will I ever learn not to read the Motley Fool? Anyway, back to you. Yeah, and I think I think you're I think you got a couple digits off there. I don't think it was I think it was it was a um I believe it was 1.4 billion not 114 billion because if if they got 114 billion dollars in revenue, their stock would be uh uh, astronomical. <laughs> so, so I think that I think there might be a couple digits off there. So anyway, so I think, um, yeah, but, uh, I think that overall, uh, the real challenge for zoom is what they're really good at is the video, um, the video part, you know, and they, and they're better at it than anyone else right now. And I think that they're caught up in a challenge of, are they going to, um, continue to take, take that lead and expand on it? Is that, is that an avenue that can grow? And I don't, you know, I'm just saying that that's the, that they could just keep extending their lead. What it appears that they're doing more of is trying to be like Microsoft. <laughs> you know? and so, and like, how do we be like Microsoft? And Apple did that in the nineties and it did not turn out well. So I think that that's going to be the challenge. Like, can they actually pull that off? Can they persuade us people like me to like do anything other than open this for a video meeting? Because now when I open up Zoom, there's like this huge interface. It looks like, you know, Skype had a baby with, uh, or no, Slack had a baby with, you know, Teams or something like that. And it just, it's just a bunch of stuff that I just turn off. Like, I just, I'm like, oh, I don't need that. And so, um, so the, uh, so I think that that's the challenge. Can they convert people like me to using the rest of the platform? I'm not sure that they can, but I'm also not sure that trying to extend their lead. But I think that the danger they have is that some of the other companies are coming up fast. Microsoft's not, you know, like, I don't think Microsoft's video solutions are, um, competitive. And then I don't think they have right now, I don't know if they have the team to make it competitive. Um, but I think, and they're the closest, but I was surprised the last time I jumped on a WebEx, how much it had changed. Like it, not that it's as good or even, even very good, but it was a lot better than it was infinitely better than it was two years ago. So, so there are people who are spending a lot of money on this. And I think my biggest concern for, 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 uh, for zoom is that they'll get, they'll get distracted by, trying to be the be all end all of office communication and not and they'll lose their lead in doing video and they have a great team to work on that but if they get if that team gets distracted you know the, the the liminal team is best corporate video team i've ever seen you know like and i've been doing this for a long time like no close second you know no, ever that i've ever seen so the liminal team is the the team that makes this work but if they distract that team with a bunch of other things um we could end up with something that's you know they could end up losing that lead um, you know, so I think that that's the, that's the real challenge for zoom, um, to go forward. But I don't think any of that's being calculated by these little analysts that, you know, don't know anything about what they're, what they're investing in. Go ahead, Chris. Yeah. I don't think, I don't think the being better at video <clears throat> is what they need to worry about. It's great for us. We lean into it heavily, of course, but what they really need to do is they need to deal with their customers at the decision makers. So I'm seeing it with companies that are just categorically blocking out Zoom for whatever reason. It doesn't matter why they're doing it, but Zoom has to figure out what it, what those reasons are and they have to address those reasons. If you are Ford in the 80s or 70s, whatever, and your Pintos blow up when they get rear-ended, next year 
you don't have to worry about putting a better paint job on the Pinto. You have to convince people that they're not going to blow up, that you've changed the exhaust system, it doesn't ram itself into the gas tank anymore, and... I'm sorry, I'm dating myself. Uh, <laughs> and, and if they get, get rear-ended, they're not going to blow up. Okay, changing right. the paint doesn't help. Yeah, I, I, the only thing I'll say about that is that, you know, this is my equation. Action equals possibility oh, is greater than circumstance. You're talking about the circumstance and trying to push that circumstance down. And I don't know if they can do that. Like, I don't know if that's going to be possible. But I do think by making the video products much better, you can get the possibility to get bigger than the circumstance. And the reason for that, the reason I say that is because, you know, we saw a glimpse. We're nowhere near where we need to be when it comes to doing, you know, you know, video, you know, video discussions and specifically scaled meetings. Um, and there's an incredible amount of possibility there. If we look at you know, the just if you just look at the education market, the education market is going through a moment, you know, and this is the K through 12 education market. That is a $600 billion market. And, the, and what's holding back the, the math in that area is that no one, I feel like no one's looking at. The math is, is that the voucher systems that are being rolled out are $7,000 a student, which is not enough money to do a brick and mortar school. Like you can't do a brick and mortar school at 7,000. You need 14,000, 12,000. Those, those are the numbers you need to get the brick and mortar school going. Yet nobody is serving that market with a tool that allows you to build the next generation of classrooms online. That is worth more than they made the last quarter every week. You know, like if they figure that out. And, and there are like 10 of those that are out there. If you figure out how to build truly scalable meetings... Um, you know, and, and events is not probably going to be that, um, you know, and so the thing is, but truly scalable meetings and they have the right team to figure these things out. They have all the stuff, but, but I don't think that, I don't think the answer to, to, to be honest is I just don't think that all this other business stuff, you know, a lot of us just don't care about it, you know, and, and most people are embedded. Like you're not going to move many people from office 360 because they're in it. You're like, you know, once you're in it, it's really hard to pry them out of that. But I think that building something that truly transcends the way we think about meetings, where you stop thinking about it, we, we kind of, we were on our way there and then we've all stalled, right? You're like no one's doing the kind of work. People like us are doing the work for everybody else with hardware and calculating and figuring those things out. But Zoom is the, is the, is the heir apparent to do that really well. And I feel like they're, they've slowed that down to do all this other stuff. And again, it, they look exactly like, you know, Steve Jobs came in and he, all he did, like he took, Fifth, uh, 10 years of Apple trying to be Microsoft and just erased it and, and released the next Mac. Like he just, he literally went back to 1987 and just, you know, uh, 10 years over. later, he's like, we're just going to ignore that decade and then we're just going to release another Mac. Apple could have been where it was in, 19, you know, it could have done that Mac, you know, much, much earlier. It could have, you know, it could have kept on going, but they, it got lost and it spent 10 years in the wilderness trying to be like Microsoft. And no one can be like Microsoft because Microsoft has has scale. It has a scale that people just buy it because they buy it. They're not going to, like, there's a there's an inertia there that Microsoft doesn't have to be good at anything to just keep on, you know, kind of plowing through. And they, they do reasonably well on a lot of things. And they just kind of do reasonable, but they don't have to do anything. Everyone else has to be better than Microsoft to do it. And even then you have this huge installed base that isn't going anywhere. You know, like, you know, it's, it's kind of like why Final Cut should never go after the film market is because they can have all the meetings they want with Avid editors about what does this have that we don't have and everything else. But the Avid editors are never going to give up Avid. <laughs> 
<laughs> you know, until it dies. So you can sit there and try to put all those features in that, that Avid has, and and then they're still going to stay there. And and it would have just been a waste of um, a, you know, a waste of energy to try to put all the features in that no one else cares about. And you've now taken your engineering team and spread it out over something that doesn't matter. And I think that that's the concern that I have with Zoom. I still think, I mean, obviously they're the best in the business at what they have. They have the right teams in place to do it. And the the question will really be, you know, leadership from the top about whether they can actually like not get, not try to do what it feels like they're doing right now. So I'd like to point out something that we all just witnessed. My comment was about doing today better. And Alex's retort was, but let's talk about tomorrow. That's all I care about. I know. And, and I will say, Alex, and I've said this before, uh, I used to pride myself in being the guy in our company that was looking over the fence to see what was coming next. And when we started office hours, there was some discussion. You got into you know one of your sermons. And, uh, I, was li- and I was listening, and I realized at that point that you were the guy, when I looked over the fence to see what was coming next, that you were the guy on the other side of that yard looking over the next fence. And, and, that's, and what we just witnessed there, and Alex doesn't pay me to pat him on the back like this, what, uh, what we just witnessed, I'm literally trying to fix today, and Alex is like, okay, let's let today die. Let's talk about tomorrow, though. And the thing about the, the school of the future, like, yeah, you're right. That's a bigger thing. And yet, we still do have to live in today. Well, and the other side of the school of the future, by the way, is that, you know, or 87% of kids, or it's 80%, 87% of kids under 18 are using iPhones. What is going to happen? And they have no interest. They, all, you know, all of the, the polling, they have no, I mean, the amount of derision that is thrown at, at Android um, you know, in the, in high schools and my kids talk about it. That's why I'm very green, green conscious bubbles. to it. Well, the green bubbles and that this is, this is just for people who are 50 or older. And this is like, like, like they, or, or, or like they just, the, the, the level of that. But the thing is, is Apple has locked that up. That's what, like, we don't understand. Why do they have all these memojis and why do they have all these little stickers and why do they have their, Apple has just landed in this, like, we're going to focus on, 18 and under, and they are burning the future up for, for, you know, the, uh, for Android in the United States, you know, because they've just, they've just toasted the future by not paying attention to today. Their Apple is playing a 10 year game, you know, or 20 year game where they've just totally embedded themselves with the next generation by that little green bubble and all the things that they're doing. And I think that that's what we have to always pay attention to with K through 12 and K through 12 has never been so flexible as it is today like in our lifetimes, you know, and because of all the the chaos that's going on, you know, and, and it needs to have some chaos. It needs to change, you know, from where it has been. And so, so I think that there's, it's an exciting moment, possibly in like a Chinese curse sort of way, but it's an exciting moment for, for that. But it's really, it's the, the opportunity. And that's just one opportunity that Zoom has in front of it. And it's just, you know, anyway, go ahead, Mitchell. Yeah, I think, uh, Feature bloat killed the video star. I think that uh, Zoom may be approaching that uh, that event horizon that we call the Peter Principle, uh, where they uh, tend to uh, expand beyond their level of competency. And uh, as you said earlier, Alex, I think it made sense is that what did they do best? They make video easy for everybody. 
Um, if you add features like Microsoft tends to do, you're not necessarily making it easier or better. Um, and I think that's the, the trap that a lot of people fall into. If you look at Apple products, they must fight tooth and nail for every tiny little menu item on every software product that Apple releases. It's just simple to its simplest mode. So I just implore Zoom not to go too far with the with the features. That isn't why we buy it. We buy it for its consistent ability to deliver a great conference. And, and I get that this, what we're talking about is something that would take a leap of faith. Like what they're doing is what every analyst would tell them to do is to, is to try to take that market. I just don't, I'm not clear that it'll work. And, and again, after seeing the, the Apple movie of the, of the 90s, I, I feel like we're, we're potentially in that. That's the challenge that Zoom has. And we could totally be wrong. They may, they may turn this over and make a, I think they make a lot of money being the next Microsoft, but we'll, we'll see. Um, next question. Douglas Carmichael asking, uh, what hardware would you recommend for experimenting with self-hosted LLMs and other AI technology on a personal level? Go ahead, John. Whatever you do, don't buy the NVIDIA Jetson. We bought one of those. And we could not get it working on any of the LLMs because the drivers are not released. Just get a get an NVIDIA 10, 40, 40, one of the 4000 series cards and you'll be fine. You can run any of the local LLM models on, on 4000 series. Go ahead, Paul. Yeah, correct me if I'm wrong, John, but both uh, <clears throat> stable diffusion and, and LLM models that you run offline require huge amounts of RAM and VRAM. And to run and learn those models, you, you're going to need like an RTX 3070 and 3090. Maybe you or yeah, be patient. Given me the upside or, or, or patient. Like you should yeah, be patient. So. Like the like these stable diffusion will work on a Mac Mini. It just it just takes a long time. Like yeah, you just, so you, you throw you it in there. Like at least an i7. Yeah, or you just let it sit there and cook for a while. I, I played with it a little bit. I, I did decide I'd rather just pay for mid-journey than, 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 to, than to try to put it on my computer. But it, it, it did produce things and I could train it. It was just that it was, it produced them very slowly. Quick reminder, of course, that you can ask questions throughout the hour. Um, and uh, so go ahead and throw your questions into McConnell. First hour, uh, you can have questions about uh, general media production. That's what we're answering right now and kind of wandering around a little bit. And uh, second hour, of course, Nick Justin will be here talking about LiDAR and photogrammetry and Unreal Engine. So if you've got questions about that, go ahead and throw those in. And let's go ahead and jump into the next question. Peter Belbin in Houston, Texas has a question. The other day, I asked about an all-in-one camera. People leapt. They leapt to the Sony ZV-E10, but that's not an all-in-one ThinkCam quarter. A video-first camera with at least F FHD live HDMI output for connection to an ATAM. Suggestions? Go ahead, Courtney. I've used a number of these uh, Canon Vixias. Um, this is the H100. That's about uh, you know close to eight hundred bucks. You can get them re uh, refurbed, uh, or uh, factory you know, factory refurbished a lot cheaper than that. And they have HDMI output. The output is uh, a mini HDMI, so you have to get an adapter to go to full size HDMI. I think on this one, but it works pretty well. It it uh, has fairly. You're not going to get the bokeh of a a single sensor. Uh, um, you know, like a DSLR uh, with a larger sensor. It's gonna, this is a small sensor, so you're not going to get that bokeh. So, but it's a lot easier to keep a lot of stuff in focus with uh, without having to worry about the autofocus constantly breathing in and out and shifting focus. Go ahead, Paul. Yeah, I have the ZV-1, which is a predecessor, and uh, it's a great little blogger camera. I have a lot of trouble using it for streaming because of the cabling setup on it. I they just, it's just really hard to attach the two tiny little 
mini cables on it. Uh, this is the this is the one we were talking about the ZVE10, um, and uh, the thing that has I've been testing it. I'm going to put it back into production here later this week. Um, but um, so this is a micro, and the advantage here was that this is from Mitch. Um, this is um, you know getting this this little this is a full full sized HDMI going to the micro, so I don't have to keep on pushing the micro in, um, and then power is coming from a thing which it actually has a like a little door at the bottom. I don't know if you can see that. But um, there's like a little door down here that lets it um, lets this cable come out. So it was really built for it. And then um, and so you know I think this is gonna we'll, we'll see. This will probably be my full time webcam starting uh, next week. Um, so I just I had some power problems with it because I didn't have that battery insert. So yeah, go ahead, uh, Mitchell. Yeah, I think the range of webcams uh, is broadening, and Sony is sort of latching onto that. Uh, especially with their ZV series. They have ZV series, like Paul has the ZV-1, uh, Alex has the ZV-E10, as do I. And I think it's a it, it's on the edge of being a little too expensive for a webcam, but it's giving us all kinds of neat little things like the great bokeh backgrounds, the ability to remove the lens and put a, um, a lens of your choice on there, and it's got a bigger sensor in it, so you have more uh, flexibility there. But it's interesting to watch the trajectory of this business model that Sony is starting to reinvent. And I think that they've they've established they're gonna be in the game. And of course, once again, it has that wonderful auto zoom. Yeah, I mean, I think that Sony has nailed this so far. You know, they, they've really done a really good job. And there's things about, like if I go out and record footage, I still find myself using my Blackmagic cameras because I, I, I have I have more scale, I have more things that I can you know put together. So in the little world, you know, the little little camera, sub ten thousand camera. And when I go over ten thousand dollars for cameras that we rent, then I'm you know using Aries and Venices and stuff like that. But the but in the smaller um, in the smaller group, I think Sony has really nailed it, and they've also nailed it in the sense that they have gotten really good at at outreach to the creators. They have this whole Sony camp and they, you know, they spend a lot of time in education. The autofocus turns out to be the killer app. I mean, I think that if if Blackmagic could still take this because I actually think the recording formats and the and the structure of the Blackmagic camera, I the interface on the Blackmagic camera is better. There's in fact I would say that I prefer uh, pretty much everything that the Blackmagic camera does better than the Sony except for the autofocus. Like like literally that's the only thing, that's the only hold. So what I think Blackmagic should do, of course, is hire 20 engineers and figure this out. <laughs> like, like just, just figure this, you know, get so this So Alex, working. you're saying that you went to Sony only because of the autofocus. It did, yeah. That's it, okay. Because I wanted a shorter depth of field and I found myself, you watch old shows and you'll see me doing this all the time, trying to find my focus because, you know, just the, the Blackmagic autofocus is so janky that it, you just can't, like, it's good. If you're if you're doing as a cinema camera, which is what they call it, if you're doing a cinema camera and you're, do, you know, you're someone's manually focusing it or you're managing it or whatever, the Blackmagic camera is amazing. And the recording and how it manages formats and how it does all the other things and there's everything about it, the interface on the back, the LUT management, the integration with Resolve, everything is better about that camera except for the autofocus. And and so when I go out and shoot stuff that I care about, still going back to the, and I have people or me or whatever that's going to control that focus, still using the, um, you know, the, uh, the, the Blackmagic cameras. Because I was, I was going to go to the beach. You know, we had a little rain over the weekend, but I was going to go to the beach and shoot this ambisonic stuff. And what I packed was my Blackmagic cameras. <laughs> you know, so so it's not either or, but it is something that I feel like for the show and for things that I need. Like I think that 
we had much more things in focus during for the SeaGraph than we did at NAB or at Cinegear or NAB, yeah, NAB, because we were using, um, uh, we we were using the the Sony camera instead of the Blackmagic camera. Yeah, go ahead, Courtney. But all those are are really more still cameras that do video rather than video purpose camcorders. Yeah, but those cheap camcorders. I mean, the camcorders under a thousand dollars are not. Does uh, is Leo still using on uh, the Twit yeah, network? Is he still using, using the Vixias, the Canon Vixia? Uh, the G tens, yeah, yeah, the G tens. They're okay. Oh uh, yeah, go and ahead, they're seven twenty though, aren't they? Uh, they're ten eighty i. I think he can. I think I think he takes ten eighty i and then converts it. Yeah, I mean for a seated talk show, I think it's probably fine. It's it, but but I wouldn't. And I still have cameras like that laying around, but I wouldn't. I would also with their extended depth. Of, they don't have the short depth of field that yeah. the others do, so you don't have to worry about autofocus as much because everyone's unless they're getting up. Sure, and but then around, everything's in focus. In the rain. Exactly. <laughs> like just like the little YouTube. Yeah, is, YouTube has killed. It's been good that YouTube has kind of backed come back a little bit when the first when the mark twos came out everything was so out of focus it was just like there's a blur behind you and and um and somehow i think that when we see the auto blur from from zoom and and teams and everything else i think they went back and looked at a mark two at a 1.2 you know like let's make it super and it's just too blurry back too there. much too much blur um, i think apple's built-in version in the new operating system is significantly better than everybody else's if you tell it's a webcam and put that in there. Um, yeah, go ahead, Paul. Yeah, I think you solved the cabling problem. I think I'm going to try to apply what you just showed so to my this is, ZV-1. This is a, you yeah, know, so that's what makes this work, what make, yeah, what makes this work is um, this is a small rig, rig. I buy every camera I buy, I buy a small rig for it. So a small rig rig, it's $50 more to get this little metal rig that gives me mount points everywhere. And I can, you know, I just order some more sprigs so I could put sprigs on this guy. And sprigs are little places, little cable management that I can do on it. And then this is a piece that small rig makes that it attaches to this rig. And this was Mitch, Mitch's uh, suggestion and it works great. And so it does the micro, micro HD and then it's just an HD output. It, it's a, it is, you're, you're right. It's a great setup. And, but the, the first step is the small rig rig, which again, I recommend for every camera, like every camera I buy, I just put the small rig in it because it protects the camera. I've had the camera fall and hit it and it just hit the small rig and it was fine. Um, what determines whether you use the uh, Sony versus the Insta360 for a show? What, what goes, what's your process of deciding which to use? Uh, the Insta360 is if I want to do multi-camera, if I want to do multi-camera by myself, like of like of the cooking stuff that we're doing or of interviews or something like that, and a little multi-camera thing, and I want to control all of them and I want to reframe them and do all the stuff where, where I'm either, it's either me or somebody else. And so that, it's a great little pack. I mean, I can get this down to a little, like a 1510, I can take a three camera shootout with me. And, um, so those, those cameras work great for that. Um, but so, and the other cameras, a lot of setup, you know, to make that happen. But then I'm, I'm also deciding I'm going to use Mimo live. I'm going to, you know, tie these in, I'm going to, you know, build all the stuff inside of a software because it's USB. So I'm now changing my, my production workflow, but it, we were doing that a lot for the Michael Krasny's, uh, you know, um, for gray matter, uh, dot show we were doing, uh, using those at the beginning. Now we're doing a single camera because we really decided we don't want to bring people into the studio. We'd rather just do it over Zoom. Um, next question. From Paul Wallace at Austin, Texas. How would you produce an Amazon product review with two products and no unboxing? Okay, Paul, I don't know what you're talking about here. Uh, well, it, it, this came out of Amazon announced that they're going to 
give $12,500 if you do 500 product reviews. And they have to be about two products. Each review has to be about two products. And it's caused an uproar in their reviewer community. They're incensed, you know, that Amazon would try to pay so low. So that, so, but the challenge is how do you do a, a I'm thinking of trying it. You know, trying to do well, the, 500 the, reviews. I don't know if it'll, I don't give know it a happen. shot. The problem is, is that it's like, no, the, the <laughs> issue is, is that, that Amazon wasn't paying anything before. Like, you know, they were, they were just, Amazon, you know, like, so if you're trying to turn this into a business in the United States, it's not going to work. You're not going to make enough money. You could do it. You could do it in other countries. You could, you could do something like that, but then you'd have to get the products there to review them. Um, but you can do them all in one, you know, you have to do them all, I would say, as a single camera shoot. Um, you know, you can't, or maybe a multi-camera, but you'd have to be able to do it all live. You, you have to do the review live and, and you can't do it in post at all. So you'd have to figure out how you're going to do a live edit to do this stuff. Um, but the thing is people are doing video reviews for, before for free. Um, Amazon just isn't getting enough of them. That's the, I mean, they're trying to figure this out. They've been, you know, the Amazon live thing has been a bit of a wash. Um, and, uh, they just couldn't get the numbers there. This is another example of like, let's do something that we see. Everyone's ex interested in this because, China, like in China, they are, it is a massive, like streaming about products and talking about them is a massive business. And, and people keep on looking at that and they can't figure out, you know, how to crack that code that, the, the, you know, in, in, I mean, it's like a $60 billion industry in, in China. Um, and everyone's trying to figure out how to do it. No one's figured out how to do it here. Go ahead, Courtney. If you have to buy 1200, what is it? How many products do you have to buy? Paul, don't they send me. them to you or something? Or what's the deal? Paul, what it's, is, it's 500, 500 if you reviews. Had to but buy, do they send if, them to you? Do they send them to you? Yeah, or? That's the question. You have to pay for the 500 items you're reviewing? Because if you do, that $1,200 isn't going to go very far. Yeah, I don't know. I, I could probably, I buy so much from Amazon, I could probably find 500 items in this room that I could, that I could review. So I could sit around and just at a table and just say, I like this. I don't like this. Like, you know, that, that's what a review should be. This is great. This stinks, you know, like, you know, and, and, that, and you, you could do, you could do 500 pretty fast that way. Um, uh, next question. Next question from David Brady in New York, New York. What are the implications of the New York Times considering lawsuits against open AI? Uh, you know, what kept a, AI has been floating around in the ether for a, over a decade. You know, we saw it hitting and what kept everybody on the, on the sidelines was the fear of being sued, the fear of someone using it the wrong way, the fear of it getting out of the gate and going too fast. And so Google and Microsoft and even Apple sat there building up their their tools, using them quietly in the background to figure things out and do all these other things. And then OpenAI just jumped out there and forced everybody's hand to move forward. And so now everybody's got to start putting it in. Now it's a, it's a race. But everyone is still going about half speed. It's kind of like one of those things where they're running and looking at you and running and looking at you and running and looking at you, trying to make sure that they're not going too far where they get sued and everything else. The problem is, is that there's a high probability that these, these, these lawsuits will fail. And so they're, you know, so everyone's kind of tepid about what they're doing. Like as fast as you see AI going right now, it's this is what it looks like when everyone's going half speed, quarter speed, um, you know, trying to trying to make sure that they're not getting overextended for this lawsuit. As soon as these lawsuits start failing, which I think that there's about a 50, 60 percent, maybe 70 percent chance they're all going to fail, because I think that it's really hard to prove that 
them making stuff up from scratch, even though if it looked at something, because what they're going to argue is, well, people look at stuff all the time. And they, and then they, if, if I read a bunch of books and then I write another book, does that mean about the same subject? Does that mean I copy the, you know, I copy those books if I didn't quote anything directly? It's a very complicated problem to, to ask. And I don't think that the current Supreme Court is going to understand that. <laughs> I think they're just going to go, I don't think that this is a problem. Um, but, but we could be wrong. So they're taking their, you know, they're taking the risk of going down this path. Um, if they fail, you're going to see what AI can really do. Like, you know, you just have to understand, like, if these, if these lawsuits, it's a huge risk to do these lawsuits. Because if they don't succeed, they're going to get buried. Like, you know, like they're, you know, this is going to, you know, all, all, you know, suddenly there's going to be a trillion dollars that just opens up out of the, out of the, out of the sky. So, um, you know, to, to invest in these things. And so that's the real danger of the lawsuits is that if, if everyone knows it's okay, you know, everyone's not spending a lot of money yet. I mean, this is, it may feel like it, but they're not, you know, this is the next step after this is huge. So, so it'll be really interesting to see. It'll take four or five years for it to sort itself out. So we, we can talk about this for a while. We'll get one, a question like this once a week and we'll just keep giving you updates. Uh, next question. John Richardson in Florida asked, stupid question. Maybe I'm missing something. I use AI occasionally for graphic stuff, but what are you guys using all this AI for? Go ahead, John. Using MidJourney every every day. I'm doing a lot of presentations lately, and all of my graphics and all of my presentations are done in mostly in MidJourney. And then the generative AI in Photoshop for removing stuff, my my mom sent me an old photo of her and her family, and I had to remove a shadow across multiple people. Spectacular, and I'm told it's really good at at removing watermarks, but I'm not sure about that. <laughs> Go ahead, Chris. I I can concur. It will remove a watermark. Uh, I I'm the biggest you know stick in the mud when it comes to this whole AI thing. Uh, I use it for set extensions. Uh, if I if I have a Zoom call that was shot a little tight or let's say I want to put a box over my shoulder here and I can just draw, as long as the the body doesn't go out of frame, I'll just make the, the frame wider and push the guy over. It's it's astonishing. It What's really cool is I, I taught uh, one of our producers about it. I said, hey, let me walk you through this. And I... I took her through it, and she was like, oh, oh, oh. And like a week later, I saw some of her comments to some of the other editors. She's like, yeah, I think we need to do a set extension to the left and put the box over the shoulder. And I was like, oh, I've created a monster. <laughs> because <laughs> exactly. I know, I'm, I'm fairly certain that the editors that they were she was talking to don't know anything about generative fill. So, yeah, yeah I've created a monster. <laughs> Good job, Sasha. <laughs> Go ahead, Paul. Yeah, I'm using it for web development. I've got over 100 websites, so I'm, mm-hmm. I'm hoping that it'll help me with my workflow. And I'm, all, I'm also using something called rewind.ai. It tracks everything I do. It tracks everything I write, all everything I do on video. Uh, it's on my iPhone. It's on the Mac. Unfortunately, it's not on the PC yet, not on the PC. So uh, yep. it's an amazing piece of software. Yeah, I... Uh, um uh, for me, most of what I do is mid-journey and I, I, I mostly do it for my presentations. So I make little things over white. And so I, you know, have these little like little characters and things and it just makes it a lot of, it makes it a lot more fun. Uh, and it looks like you spent, you had a team building all this stuff as opposed to you just throwing things together and it happens really fast. Uh, so that's what I use it for mostly. But then I also use ChatGPT to, uh, 
I just made soup. Chat GPT, my chat GPT soup is so good. Um, and uh, so I just, I just finished a huge vat of it last night and we had it for dinner. Um, and, uh, and then the other thing that I, I use it for is to think about things. Like I'll ask it things like, tell me about this. And what I love doing is going like, my, my daughter asked me something. I said, Richard Feynman explaining quantum mechanics to a fifth grader. Like, so here's your reference point. Here's what you're going to explain. Here's your target. Like, and if you, when you set that target, when you do that, um, it will give you incredible results, you know, like, you know, and, and so those are the kind of things that I do a lot of. And, and, um, I do a lot of explaining to a fifth grader, even on something I know what it is because it helps me figure out how to say it in a different way. Like I had to do a blockchain one. I think I read it at some point on one of these shows and John concurred that it was accurate and it was like explain blockchain to a fifth grader. And it was, and it was uh, just said, you know, it just explained the, the, the chain perfectly, you know, um, in simple terms. Next question. From Douglas Carmichael, I've been experimenting with Bing Chat powered by GPT-4 and I'm blown away by the quality and detail of its output in comparison to GPT-3.5 or Google Bard. Why do you think GPT-4 is so much better? I go, John. I don't, I don't think it's much better and it doesn't have the internet integrated into it like Bard does. And so if you're looking for later stuff, you're going to find Bard produces better results. What I do now is I run Bard GPT-4, um, and then also Claude. And then I usually get a consensus of, of, amongst the, the three, two out of three LLMs say, I did it yesterday. I was researching a, a very complex mathematical equation for my presentation next week. And two of the three LLMs came up with the right answer. And so I use all three and then mash together physically. Um, and, and GPT-4 is just a little bit better than BART is right now for results. Next question. Kenny Hampton in Greenville, Illinois, looking for your opinion on an HDMI cable signal amplifier for long runs. I'm considering a Legrand C2G inline extender. What are your thoughts? Go ahead, Courtney, real quick. Uh, I looked at it. It looks okay. Uh, it depends on, I guess, which end of the cable you put it on. <clears throat> it's just a little box with an HDMI in and an HDMI out, and, and it passes the uh, HDCP along. Um, it does require power, I think. Yeah, it's a point of failure. I wouldn't do it. <laughs> I wouldn't put this in the middle of my feed. Uh, if it loses power, if it loses anything, it loses connection. I, I just, I would get a cable. You can get cables for HDMI that go a long way, Ampl you know, self-amplified, you know, fiber cables and so on and so forth. And I would do that or I'd convert it to SDI and go before I would amplify an HDMI signal. Next question. From Peter Belbin in Houston, Texas, given our popular Sony cameras are, would Blackmagic Design do way better if they supported remote control of other makes of cameras such as the Sony? Blackmagic Design doesn't seem too responsive to requests like this, unfortunately. Yeah, go ahead, Mitchell. I, I don't think it would make business sense for them to uh, go out of their way. And plus, all the other cameras in the world, that's a, that's a big task. So I think they're doing the right thing with what they have trying to integrate with other people's the, the big advantage that black magic has is it owns everything so it doesn't have to ask for permission to do things and make things work it would just be a, it would be a, a, a be really painful for black magic to do that i don't think there's any chance that they would even think about it um next question jack rupel from breckenridge colorado does uh, ios and or ipad os have features that use time code audio jam sync 
Um, yeah, there. Yeah, go ahead, Courtney. Uh, probably not accurately. They may do it. Uh, they may be able to jam sync to the internal clock, but it's not a crystal controlled uh, oscillator, so it's not going to stay in sync for very long unless it's continuously jam sync. There are, are uh, several applications that you can download for the iPad that will display time code, which is great because you can send time code into the audio input jack on them and get you a time, make it like a time code slate out of it. So it'll decode and display time code. So those are handy. And when you unplug the time code from them, some of them might keep it running, but they're using that internal clock, which I say, like I say, it isn't crystal controlled. Uh, I mean, isn't temperature control crystal? Yeah, the um, I think it's movie slate is the one that, uh, or film slate, one or the other. I can't can't think of it at the moment. I can't open it right, that quickly, but uh, that that does have a uh, um, does have time code. Uh, so, but it, to, to Courtney's point, you'd have to continually feed it with a tentacle or something else to keep it um, in sync. Um, but it, but it will do that in it. And if you use it, a lot of times we use it when we don't have time code, we have it run time code so that all the cameras look at it and everything else. And it makes a little noise and, and it allows us to resync things later if we had to. Um, next question. Next one in from John Richardson in Florida. If I want a decent low-end VR camera to shoot trade show stuff for Oculus, what do you re recommend? Stepping up from Samsung cameras. Don't laugh. Yeah, the, um, the, the Theta is really good. It depends on how much you want to spend. But the Theta's, um, the, the, I have the Theta V, I think, is the one that I use. Um, I think it's around $1,000. And so it's not super high end. I mean, the, um, but, um, and then the other ones, the Insta360s are really good. Um, so I would take a look at the Insta360s. And then finally, uh, uh, GoPro makes one, but the, the render time is really long on the GoPro, at least in my opinion. Um, but the Go GoPro makes a, a 360 camera as well. Those are the, the ones that mostly live in that kind of sub $1,000 range or sub $1,500 range. And, and I, I, if I was going to pick one right now, I'd probably get the Insta360. I have a Theta because I bought it a long time ago. Uh, next question. From Paul Wallace in Austin, Texas. In After Hours yesterday, we were marveling at the innovative Deploy Workstation, which is a mobile 19-inch rack with bicycle-like tires. What's your comment? Um, there's a lot of them like that. <laughs> so this is not, it may look new for if you don't see them a lot, but there's there's tons of these out there. We're going to keep moving because we're going to try to get through a couple more questions. But that's it, it's a good rack. It's a good rack. There's a lot of audio racks that look like that, though. Um, uh, next question. From Douglas Carmichael, the Surplus Dell PowerEdge R430 server. I have, uh, it has two PCIe 3.0 slots. Could an NVIDIA RTX 4000 series card fit in it? I don't know. Um, I don't know the answer to that because I don't do a lot of blades with big, usually when we get, so, so the issue is that usually when we're doing this, um, we throw in a lot of, uh, we, we put them in bigger boxes. <laughs> so I don't usually put them in blades. Uh, so, so I think that that, or I think that power edge is a blade, I believe. Um, and so we don't usually, we, I usually put them in larger boxes to do the processing that we need. They're usually like five U if turned sideways kind of thing. So, so I think that I don't know if this one will, will work or not. Uh, quick reminder that, of course, uh, we've got um, next, uh, tomorrow we've got a brain audio day brainstorming. So we'll be figuring out what, we, what do you want to hear more of and how do you want to make that work? So, um, so stay tuned uh, for that and, and definitely come with your ideas. So this time you're going to use your questions um, as a way to suggest things that we should look at. We're not answering questions about audio in the second hour. We are suggesting things that we can talk about for a whole second hour uh, in the second hour of next of tomorrow. So stay tuned for that. Uh, we're going to be kind of spreading those out. We've done them all in one week in the past and it's been a little too much. 
so so we're doing it in a we're we're doing it in a different way this time. Um, and then on Thursday we'll talk about camera rigging. So how do we get all this? Like this is a good example. How do we rig this stuff up? And how do we tie it all together? And what are the tools that you need? So we'll talk about camera rigging there. Of course, um, Friday we're still working some stuff out with that. But um, Saturday and Sunday we'll have two hours of Q and A. And of course, always a reminder that Sunday is a little bit of an introspection. So we usually um, take a little bit more time. Talk a little. We talked. We a little bit of the show that was an introduction to what we what Sunday's like. <laughs> I was just wandering around answering questions there. So um, so definitely join us for that. And a reminder that the uh, radio app is out there. Um, you can download if you go to Discord under the announcements, you can make that actually happen. And um, now we're going to go with, without further ado, we're going to get ready to go into the second hour. And we are now starting up the second hour and we have Nick Jushishin here. Hey, Nick. Hey, how's it going? Thanks for having me. It's good to, good to have you back. And uh, this is a it's, it's a, it's a nice set there. Is the set real? This set is not real. Um, <laughs> this is what it looks like in the, in the room. Yeah. Uh, so. There we go. So, um, and uh, so anyway, so Nick and I, of course, spent, if, if you haven't seen it, we wandered around Seagrav a couple weeks ago, which was fantastic. Uh, just wandered around looking at it. So definitely check that out. And uh, Nick, what are we talking about today? Uh, I thought I'd bring in some samples of uh, photogrammetry and uh, iOS LiDAR. So these are like off-the-shelf consumer technologies and, and how you can use those results in a uh, production flow to bring them into Unreal Engine. And then you can do pre-visualization or rendering. And uh, so I thought I'd kind of show how I use those things together to put uh, a scene together. Well, go so ahead. Let's I guess, see. Let's, and and what right, are you using right now for your, um, you know, when you're talking about phone lidar, uh, there mm -hmm. are a couple of different options there. What are, what are you what have you found to be the most useful? So I bounce back and forth between an iPad Pro, which actually I got in 2019, 2020, I think. Uh, and I also use, I have an uh, iPhone 14. So I would imagine that uh, it's an iPhone 14 Pro. So I would imagine that each iteration of these devices gets better and better in terms of its optics and, and sensors and such. So uh, it, I'm perfectly happy with with my iPhone. I, I can remember when we used to talk about and debate about whether the cameras in the iPhone were good enough for video or photography, and it just got to be where, well, it's the device you have with you. And, and so now, as long as this is in my pocket, I have LiDAR with me. And uh, lets me uh, scan something three dimensionally, and and measure it, and and have a reasonable degree of accuracy, and then I can bring that model uh, through USDC or FBX or OBJ into any of the three D tools that, that I use for uh, you know the rest of the workflow. And and you know the, the the funny thing I've been using it more and more. Polycam has been the one that I've been using, and and I've been using it more um, in the sense that. Uh, I find it to be remarkably accurate, like plus or minus like an inch, you know, if I'm walking around. Mm -hmm. um, and, you know, I was surprised at how it is. And I've done whole, like uh, I go to a venue, I went to a little bar that we were going to shoot in. And um, I wandered around, just walked all over the place. Now you have to be kind of careful because if, as you get bigger and anything that has a lot of smooth surfaces, I have trouble with, you know, because it stops registering. Like registration is, I don't know if you've had that problem, but registration for me in large spaces is the hardest thing. 
that in dark spaces. So it's not just the LIDAR itself, it's also using the optical imagery. So I'm using a free app called 3D Scanner App. It's a, a little purple pinkish icon that looks like a, uh, a little house. And so it's free from the App Store. And uh, one of the nice things about it is that it's simultaneously capturing photos while it's capturing the LIDAR. And it uses the photos to essentially register the three-dimensional data that the LIDAR is detecting uh, with more accuracy. But it's also using IMU. And so if you travel a long distance, you can start to introduce kind of like a creeping error over time. So some of the, I've, I've LIDAR scanned a, a fountain garden that's that covers multiple acres and it was just take it in little bites little bites little bites and then i'll use a 3d app i usually use maya but blender would be perfectly suitable uh to take all the individual scans and put them together and they are remarkably accurate um using that method i could compare to google maps or a drone flight photogrammetry and and everything lines up really really well can you show us some examples? Uh, sure. So let's see if I can share my screen. I'll share desktop here. And I think what I have, one thing that I have, let's see this. Okay. So um, this is just an NDI stream feed from my iPad. So this is what the, the 3D scans look like in the iPad after they've been fully processed. So um, this is outside in daylight. You can see the sun shining and, and giving me uh, shadows and bright areas. Uh, and I walked through this space and up this up the stairs to the doorway and then around this patio and and mainly I was interested in the patio floor and the wall and I want to be able to measure those things so I can you know once I have this skin I, I'm pretty comfortable that if I hit measure and tape measure you know that if I tap on the corners of this door that yeah four feet wide that now I know how wide that is. And so that's kind of the reference that I would use later on down the line in a 3D app. I would load this in and I would make sure that the two corners of this door are scaled such that that's four feet. And then I could um, test anything else that I'd like to, to check. So for example, the distance between a couple of these posts on the um, on the patio. Okay, so those are eight feet apart. So right away, I'm already getting a lot of information from this. Even before I've put it into a 3D app or Unreal Engine, I can already do location scouting with this. And, and so that's, uh, that's, that's really handy. Um, and, and I think that's yeah. one of the important things here is that you get into the... Um, um, one of the things that's really important is that a lot of times we go there and we're we used to go in and measure. I used to have, I have a laser measure. I still take the things to measure a couple key aspects or whatever. So I walk away with those widths and so on and so forth. We used to measure, 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 measure. When you do this, you can measure, measure, measure later in the comfort of your own home. And you're not sitting there waiting with the person who gave you access um, to, to go through it. It's just, it's just a much more straightforward process, um, in my opinion, to do this. And so it's really valuable to get good at this. And, and we've seen a lot of people, sometimes, you know, it's, it, it can be a little, I'm trying to find my, um, you saw me running around, I was trying to pull up some stuff, but, um, it, it can be, uh, 
not perfect, but it really being able to, you know, see again, like what you're showing there, which is like, oh, this is, this is eight feet. I don't know if we're cutting to Nick's, Nick's, uh, I'm looking at his, his screen. Yeah, there we go. Yep. Um, and so, you, you know, being able to just identify that stuff is super useful. Absolutely. You know, and, and in this case, like with this doorway, if we had a lot of equipment to get into this building, which was, you know, this, this was built in 1730 or something like that. Okay. Well, this is how much space we have to get through that door. Uh, and this, I mean, again, as you said, if there's limited access to uh, a space, you could go in weeks, months in advance and and do a lot of this scanning. And then you can always go back to those scans anytime you want for further reference. So, um, you know, this basically this is a, um, you know, historical building and in uh, Chadsford, Brandywine area. And uh, there was a lot of detail that we're, we're building essentially a 3D documentary about this. Uh, another thing that I've done with this is is scan like a close-up just of this uh, brick pattern. And because we have photos, I should be able to go here and uh, somewhere in here, view scan images. So I have all of the individual photos here. So after the fact, not only do I have the scan, but I have these photos that I could give to my photogrammetry software and come up with a even more accurate, you know, more highly detailed uh, 3D model because the the scan is based primarily on the LIDAR. And so if I were to go and look at, uh, I forget if I have a way here of seeing the, the amount of uh, topology that there is on here. Here it is, wireframe. Okay, so, so this is pretty good when it comes to wireframe. I'm getting, you know, basically a row or uh, three rows of faces inside the um, even just the mortar in between these bricks. So uh, that's that's nice. But photogrammetry would be able to take a look at the grain of this uh, grout texture, and and you know you're actually not quite seeing it at full resolution that I am. Uh, but this grout, all of the shadows and nooks and crannies, photogrammetry software will go in and find all that geometry and actually generate a very highly detailed model. And then I can use this patch to essentially texture the entire outside of uh, a CG model of this, of this building. So, um, I also have, uh, you know, we, we scanned, we, in, in the documentary we're creating, we're not even really, um, using the interior of the house, but while we were there, we, we scanned, uh, the interior as well. I'm just trying to see if I can find While you're looking at that, other. I'll show you a little bit of, this is yeah. one of the venues that we went to. Um, and, uh, so here's a, I'm, I'm just, this is my iPhone. Um, and, um, and what you can see is this is, I just walked around with my phone and captured this. And so we were able to, you know, we can get in there and it's not, you know, of course it's not high enough resolution for a film, but I can sit there and go, well, you know, show somebody like this is the, you know, I can, I can talk to someone and say, this is where we're going to go through here. Um, but I can, it's not just a photo. You know, the big thing is, is that I find that when I'm doing these, um, let me get this back a little bit. When I'm trying to explain to someone what a space looks like or where we might go, you know, I can, having photos is sometimes hard to understand what the space actually looks like. And so being able to grab something like this, I can say, you know, what we, what we want to do here is I want to put a camera here. I'm going to put another camera over here. I'm going to do one over here. And then I can go, oh, but let's, let's go up like, like this. 
you know, and here's where those cameras will be. And we can keep on talking about those things in a way that is just very hard to do if we, um, uh, and in this case, we were uh, we were building, some, some people watching this probably recognize this, but we were like, oh, this space, we measured the space out, you know, so we measured these, um, measured like these areas here and we realized we could put some tables in here. And so we decided, oh, this is a really great central place. So we're going to put our audio over here and we're going to put our video over here and it's this nice central thing. And we were able to, but we figured that out after we visited, you know, like we just wandered around, shot all these images and then figured out this is how we're going to, how we're going to actually put it together. And I'll hand it back to you, Nick. Yeah, sure. So if we go back to my screen share, I have um, a scan up here of the uh, room that is on the other side of that patio door we were looking at. So I don't know if this is showing yet or not, but um, are you guys seeing? Yep. Yep. Seeing we see it. Okay. All right. So you know, here's the this doorway. A much here cleaner the, version than what I what I just showed. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it, it's it's pretty good. You know, so yeah. you know, on the inside of this door, I've got 37 inches, and this also shows me. All right, there's there's encroachment. You know, so you can't just take a long. Uh, you know, if, if this bench is, is anchored in some way, then, um, it's going to be really hard to, to turn this corner because we've only got about, you know, three feet by four feet here on the inside to work right. with. So <clears throat> stuff to keep in mind. And the other thing that, that comes up is like, if we were going to be shooting in here, you know, one of the questions that maybe I didn't think to, to look at when I was going through, you only have a few minutes, scan the place, <clears throat> excuse me, is, uh, where are we getting power? You know, so I can, I can look here and, and get a sense for, all right, it looks like there might be power behind these panels because there's lights here. And oh, wait a minute, right there, there's a, there's a power outlet. Um, next to the door across there. So we might be able to use that or, you know, this might warrant a phone call and, and ask, okay, I'm seeing only one circuit. I don't know how many amps that is. We're going to need X, Y, and Z, or do we need a, you know, we want, we want to park a generator outside. And, uh, you know, the, these are kind of things that we can look at after the fact, having been there um, and, and solve those issues uh, without having to continually go back over and over again. Looks like there's actually an, a, a hidden outlet right there. So, uh, just right there. <laughs> so anyway, um, so, I mean, that's, that's LIDAR and, and it works really well inside and, uh, it works outside in sunlight. It doesn't work well in the dark. Uh, it doesn't work well with smooth, shiny surfaces because the imagery in the, uh, process is being used for the registration to combine everything, right? So if we're looking at these scanned images, they're sideways, but, um, these are the actual photos that were being taken. Um, and in the LIDAR process, oh, look, there's another outlet right there on the bottom of that, bottom of that right there. Um, the, uh, the, the photos are being used to, to register and build out this 3D model. And so the, the optical pattern here in this corner and this corner, that's going to be unique. Um, and the, the software is going to match that up by photo by photo by photo with the depth from the LIDAR uh, transmitter receiver and ultimately create that textured 3D model from that. Courtney, you had a question? And, yeah, yeah uh, what is the accuracy of that measurement? Most of the stuff you've been showing has been like eight feet, four feet. How accurate can it get based on the LIDAR? Uh, and then does it use uh, 
you know, like if the LIDAR says, okay, there's a wall over there and it's a, you know, 15 feet wide, but there's, you want to know, you know, how far is this picture from this picture? Does it then use the bitmap uh, overlay to calculate the distance between those two uh, based on the scale of the wall? So um, it's extremely accurate with objects that are in, say, two feet, three feet, out to about eight to 10 feet away that are facing perpendicular to the scanner. So in this particular view, for example, uh, the the measurement, uh, if I was pointing at this fireplace, that four foot measurement is going to be quite accurate. The nearest foot, really? It's exactly four oh, feet? It, it, it's, oh, it'll be within I mean, inches, an inch or two. Inches. Like it's, I would, yeah, it's yeah, really accurate. Question about the accuracy. Yeah. Like if you wanted now, to measure the distance between those two pictures in the wall. Could you do that? Yeah, absolutely. And again, from this particular view, now, okay, that's seven inches. (laughs) Um, I probably didn't tap it in the right spot, so let me clear it. You know, I wouldn't build a fitting. I wouldn't, like, ask uh, Chris to build a fitting to fit a piece of wood between there or something or wrap around it based on this measurement. But you, if you had something that was six or seven inches and you saw that, you'd know that you're pretty good. If you had something that was six inches, you had a pretty good chance it's going to fit between those two. So it might be just to the nearest inch in a, in a yeah. big room scan uh, like that. Yeah. I am conservative. Yeah. I'm conservative to say that it's within the inch. My experience has been that it's much better than that. Like it's it's a probably quarter inch to half inch um, at, at least, sometimes as, as much as an eighth of an inch. You know, it, it really is a very accurate LIDAR. Um, and so that's been my experience, but I would not like, I wouldn't build against that i would um you know trust but verify when we even with our even with our high-end scanners i have a i have a higher-end scanner that's the low-end high low-end lidar scanner but a high-end compared to the phone and even that you know we're talking um you know in this room it would probably be plus or minus three or four millimeters you know like it wouldn't be it wouldn't be a uh, um it wouldn't be any more accurate than so that the, new, a, the new carpenter setting would be lidar once measured twice <laughs> yeah, but when you're thinking about uh, blocking things out and making things work, it's it's uh, you know really really useful. Yeah, and to enhance the accuracy, it's not like I just stood in the middle of the room and and waved the iPad around. Um, I walked around the space, and again, uh, one of the points I wanted to make is objects that are uh, facing the scanner are left to right up and down are going to have high accuracy because of the angle differentiation between something left and right of the center of the lens up and down from the center of lens. That's really accurate to measure. Uh, If I stood in one place, say I stood in this doorway right here and I scanned the room just from that, like in a fan kind of a motion, and I, I scanned left to right, etc. The uh, the accuracy front to back might not be so good, right? Because the the difference between uh, fifteen foot away and fifteen and a half foot away might be less than one degree of of differentiation from the center of the lens. So the the subtle angle difference it, when as you move distance wise could be inaccurate. But again, that's solved by walking around the space. So I didn't stand in that doorway and scan. I faced the fireplace and then walked around here and scanned in there and and walked around here. And so 
this was assembled from a variety of scans. And so I, I'm pretty confident with this 15 foot, uh, measurement. And I would certainly be confident within two to three inches. It's probably within an inch. So. And, and also it, it is, uh, you know, we, we had one where we, we, you know, we had a, a, a couple, uh, nine days before an event in DC, we were given a part of a hallway to build a set into, you know, and we went in there and we had someone measure it and they came back and we built a SketchUp model. And then that SketchUp model was off by a couple inches and everything, you know, by four or five inches and everything was like nothing fit together when we showed up because it was in such a rush. This would have fixed a lot of that because we would have just dropped that SketchUp model in and gone, oh, that doesn't fix, that doesn't fit. Is it accurate enough to do, again, fine modeling, I mean, fine like fitting? No, but is it enough to be really sure that you're pretty darn close, you know, within within that range? Um, I think it's, it's, uh, it's, it's, it's pretty exciting for those of us who've had to do this and it's way better than us sitting there me measuring all those, like, all the measurements in that room, you know, how long would it would have taken me an hour to to get everything I needed out of that? Instead, it's five minutes of wandering around, um, and uh, and you're done. <laughs> you move on. So yeah, and I was able to walk around the entire first floor of this structure, and it's really, you know, again exploring a historical structure like this. Uh, this particular room was one of the original rooms that was built in 1730, so this is almost 300 years old, and being able to see that then combined and dropped in with our exterior scans um, is, is really exciting, which I guess is an, another thing I can kind of show is the other side of this is then using uh, photogrammetry to capture larger spaces. Now, uh, I'm on campus. The, most of this work is in, in my home office. So I, d I did some screen capture here. So I'm just kind of scrubbing through a timeline to to show um, the the alternative approach. And, and this is a photogrammetry software wire called uh, Capturing Reality. And so this 3D model of the exterior of that house is created by flying a drone around it. So you can kind of see these little, little pyramid shapes here are individual photos that were taken by a drone. And those and, photos... And what drone? Oh, it's uh, it's a knock. It's not a DJI. It's a Autel, Autel, okay. uh, Star or something. So or a little what two or three hundred dollar drone. These days, yeah, I mean, it would not be an expensive drone. It shoots ultra HD video and it shoots yeah. uh, photos that are about that resolution. But there, you can shoot raw. And were you and photos. were you shooting and were you shooting uh, photos or video? So I used to only shoot photos, but I've discovered, particularly with the capturing reality software, that it works really well with ultra HD videos. So um, I had used other tools before that um, just really struggled with video frames. And I think that was because the uh, EXIF data that you would get with a photo that tells you this is the make and model of the camera, this is the lens length that I had, etc., was being used by the uh, software to help inform its uh, solutions. Uh, it turns out with capturing reality, you can drag and drop an MOV or uh, MP4 file right into it. Say, so, yeah, I want to use this. Is, and it'll this just... is this capturing reality or is this reality capture? So 
Capturing reality is the company. Reality capture is, is the, the software. software. Got it. Not yeah. confusing at all. Yeah, yeah. Exactly. And um, and and they have a, a different tool for iPhones now. That's uh, I forget what it's called. It's 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 like reality or something. Yeah, yeah. And, and it. Uh, I've I've had some pretty good results with that. Um, you know, it it is still. Uh, a little hit and miss for the iPhone um, stuff, but but when it works, it works really well. Um, I I took some stuff where it was like picking up the texture of the rust, you know, kind of stuff. It mm -hmm. was really, um, really amazing. Yeah, absolutely. And and so um, reality capture software on, on a PC is my go-to photogrammetry mm -hmm. at this point. And and so this was a single drone flight here, um, and and. My intent was just to capture this building. Uh, but along the way, I accidentally captured, like there's a structure over here that's like a carriage house or something. And um, and it got captured. It's it's there it is. It's over here in the background. And what's crazy is that um we have like blueprints. The this part of the building was constructed in around 1914, so it's a little over a hundred years old at this point. And um, there's there's an underground tunnel that goes oh, wow. to this, and we have the blueprints for the construction project, right. and laying that blueprint like a hand drawn, genuinely blue blueprint right. over this scan lines up the structure and this building and the tunnel like perfectly. I mean, it was at that moment, it, it, and it was then that he knew. Yeah, uh, this is what he would do for the rest of his life. And one uh, of the things that's really useful is when you get that other when you get that other building, then you go over and shoot that building, and now you have a reference point. You have a you have a keystone that you can exactly take that higher res model. So if you went over and got that second house, you'd be able to get that high res, and you know how to lock it back in. Exactly, and and we can use all of this other material for reference. And again, you know, this is something where. Um, you know, I could have taken an individual measurement of the distance between these uh, arch feet, uh, but I did a LIDAR scan of that. And so then I was able to scale this scan based on LIDAR of just this doorway. And yeah. it, what's interesting is um, these three doorways are narrower than these three. They're it's just right. yeah. it's like I, I thought like something's wrong here, something's wrong. No, no, no. This is it's literally forced perspective. Um so uh so this then becomes its own 3D model. And this software lets me do things like I could select all of this shrubbery and such and yeah. just delete it out. Um and, yeah, a lot of and times so I clean up a lot of the errata on the outside just to make it it looks much nicer in that way. Um and it's more digestible. I mean, there's yeah. there's points there. And so this is what the that model looks like in Maya. So when it's loaded into Maya, fully textured, um, this is that house in, right. inside Maya. And then I also, like this side of the house, um, I didn't get in that flight. So I went back on a different day and, uh, you know, flew the drone around this side. And I had to actually wait uh, until you know, until the leaves fell. Like when I did the first flight to capture most of the house, there were just too much, there's too much on the, the trees that I couldn't really right. see. Uh, 
and so uh, again, like I could just take that and scan it. And so this is a highlight of that second scan right. and, and how that fits right in with everything else. And then you can see like the, the porch that I went around and LIDAR scanned, that's, that's all of this right here. And that the doorway that was there and, and so, so, so on and so forth. And I can line this up with, um, uh, and then the process here is like, I, I want to bring this into a real time tool. And so I'll, create a low polygon model, right? So this is millions, millions of polygons, millions of faces right. from the, the photogrammetry. But if I create a, just a, a cube and then subdivide it and punch holes in it, you know, now I'm down to uh, something like, okay, 200 faces for right. this whole wall. And that's double-sided. So, um, you know, I have mm -hmm. openings for the doorways and all that sort of thing. Right. And... I can show like here's here's more of like now what the 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 low polygon modeling and a lot of times you can build this in Maya. A lot of times uh, you can build it in Blender. You can build it in Cinema 4D. We use SketchUp a lot for these these kinds of things. So we mm -hmm. take our scans and and uh, you know use SketchUp to build build a lot of those things out just because it builds a nice light model for us to work with. Exactly. And and everything is being built, in this case, in Maya, this locator is my origin, 000, XYZ. And so everything's being built from that. And that origin is in the center of this exterior archway. So I have LIDAR of this archway. I have photogrammetry flight data from this archway. And um, I can combine it all here in Maya to scale. And then when I build a structure, this is what the structure of the house looked like when it was originally built in 1730, uh, based on the architectural information. And, and there was a uh, historical ar architect went through and kind of analyzed where the molding was and all this like, okay, this is the original structure. Uh, and so I have that and geometry. Then and then you're taking all yeah. of this and bringing it into Unreal? Right. So um, that that model looks like this in Unreal. So there we go. <laughs> uh, and so this is that brick pattern applied to that low polygon right. uh, materials. And some of the ways this, this gets separated out is that um, here in Maya, you'll see that like the top of these steps I've marked in red. And so that's a uh, a really just a basic solid color material that's red. Um, and then this is blue. And all this is doing is designating that the faces of this model that are red are going to get a different material than the, the so blue in, faces. In Unreal, you're selecting by face color. Exactly. So where the foundation of the building and the walls are separate 3D models, this is a single 3D model that I wanted to have multiple materials for. Same thing with the roof. Like I wanted to have shingling for the roof, but white trim. So I just designate with different color materials in Maya. And then that allows me to um, designate, you know, okay, this is white paint and this is cedar shingling with a bunch of debris on it and so right. on and so forth. And, and Chris, yeah. Chris you, had, you had a question? Yeah, I had a couple of questions. The, uh, Nick, you mentioned that the pillars... Uh, changed um, width in which which mm -hmm. ones were the narrow ones? Yeah, so it's not actually forced perspective. It's the narrow ones are in the center for some reason. The the wider ones are out here. I think um, it's it's a matter of like six inches difference. Um, actually, I could it's in the design. Let me see if I think at the end here I brought up. Yeah, here's one of the blueprints. Yeah, so, so they designed it that way. They designed it to be a little thicker on the outside edges and a little thinner on the inside edges. Not not yep. the same. 
Exactly. And so, yeah, so this is a hand-drawn blueprint from like 1910 or something like that. And, um, you know, lined up with the, uh, with the 3d model and the, like That's the cool. roofs line up and everything. And, uh, yeah, th this, this kind of makes me giddy every once in a while. So this is, I'm not good at golf, but, but this is, so you don't think it, I mean, as, as somebody who does build things, I would think that they did that on purpose to make it look larger. Could be. Uh, yeah, it could be you a know. bit of forced perspective that maybe that allowed. It could have been that, you know, they wanted a, a a center piece and they wanted four archways on either side. And, you know, this the center one had to be a certain width in order to be, I don't know, standard in order, you know, this was going to be the main entrance or whatever. But in order to fit all of these in, they just needed to take a few inches off of the outer ones. I mean, I, I don't know what the thinking was there, but the fact um, that they drew it all out said that they were, that they were planning ahead. There was then, a fan, financial, I mean, not financial, it was a visual thing, like a visual, like a perspective thing. That they're definitely, trying to a, yeah. Yeah. Mm -hmm. yeah. And then the next question I had uh, the, is, when you did the when you were showing the scan on the inside of the building, the inside mm -hmm. of the room, if you were scanning a smaller space, would the measurements be more accurate or less accurate? I'll give you I'll give specifically, I want to scan the inside of like uh, a forerunner, a Toyota forerunner, the, the mm -hmm. rear hatch area, because I want to build something that's going to fit inside the rear hatch of a forerunner. Yeah, I would think that would be very accurate to within less than an inch. Um, I think the, oh, the accuracy... Do you call yeah, it less than an inch very accurate? Well, yeah. <laughs> Talking to someone who does woodwork. <laughs> he's like, he's that, like, yeah. That's somebody who's building well, I do, I do metal with work. a chainsaw. So, like, I'm, I'm, with a milling machine, I'm, I'm dealing with thousandths of an inch. And so, um, you know, I don't think you're going to be within thousandths of an inch. But uh, I think when I think of carpentry, you know, I think that if you measured that and it said that it was, you know... 49 inches wide it's definitely going to be more than 48 inches wide the the um uh chris chris is like he's gonna throw a glove at you uh, anyway I know, so I know. yeah I mean, anyway but but the uh um i will say Measure that my three times. my experience is like doing small things so what i one of the things i use polycam for is if i want to build print something about you know that's going to fit something i'm gonna what i do is i use polycam to get a quick model of it and then i and then i build something in cinema 4d and then i print it and then i see how close i am and usually for a small object um like a like a switcher or something else like that it's plus or minus a millimeter or two like it's it's really like when you're dealing with a small object that it's that's right in front of it it's actually very very accurate and the larger ones because because it really depends on how far away the camera is the, the camera, the lidar on the iPhone becomes less accurate as, it, as as Nick said, as it gets further away. So if you're within, I find that if you're within um, a couple feet of the object while you're scanning it, the accuracy is very high. Um, you know, for for the lidar. And another solution there, I mean, what we would normally do if that level of accuracy is critical is to put what we would call calibration objects into that space as well. So we might put, you know, black and white. Like uh, a banana? 
No, not a banana for scale. <laughs> Unless it's probably, a very exact. It could be very small banana. It could, if it's a very exact banana. Exactly. It's, um, very, it's, it's a calibration. If, you had, if only we had, had a universal <laughs> banana measurement. Well, we're, well, let's, let's, right. let's jump into the questions because we, we got them stacking up yeah. and then we'll come back. Yeah, yeah, yeah so let, let's go to the first question. From uh, Peter Buck in San Francisco asking, imagine using LiDAR for sports analytics, picture tracking player movements and positions in real time, identifying trends and unlocking new insights and athletic performance, fantasy or reality? So there's there are solutions that are doing that really reality now. I don't believe they're using LiDAR. They're generally using either... Um, you know, radio transmitter trackers, you know, so uh, the, there'll be a device that the players are wearing that's helping track them and or uh, the data, the video is being analyzed after the fact with um, machine learning software to track the players through through the scenes. Next question. Ed Willick from Grand Rapids, Michigan. Uh, Nick, have you used LiDAR to create vector works or sketch up drafts? If so, what needs to be done to take the raw LiDAR scans to convert them to a file for vector works and sketch up uh, that can be opened? I don't have a lot of exposure to LiDAR, but find this case in interesting. Oh, yeah, that's a great question. So um, in the this particular app, and I would think that most of the LiDAR apps have this. They're, in this app, it's, it's the share button. And, and this is all the formats that this particular software is uh, able to support. So, uh, you know, STL is here. Um, and I usually export either FBX or OBJ or USD, uh, or um, I'll select all data. And whoops, that was not what I wanted to do. Didn't want to do that. Uh, if I hit all data, it'll actually collect all of the photos, all of the depth data. And um, it's internally, it's using OBJ format, which is fairly universal. And so then I'll end up with a zip file that I can upload to my OneDrive or Dropbox or whatever other apps and then um, access it from computers. So um, so that's that's ultimately how you get that out is uh, a zipped file package. And and the cool thing is is that we uh, um, I do OBJ most of the time when we're going to SketchUp, but when we do when I, if I want to send it to someone, I can export it out as a USDZ and literally text message it over messages. And they, they on a if you have a phone, if you have an iPhone on the other side, when they get that and they tap on it, it will pop up at scale. <laughs> like, like it will it will like if you give it a, a yard, it will take that whole building and just set it in front of you, and you can walk around it and everything else. It's it's kind of amazing. Um, next question. From Douglas Carmichael. Currently, I have an iPhone 14 Plus I got from a Verizon promotion. For someone wanting to get into LiDAR photogrammetry, should I get an iPad Pro or trade the Plus in for a Pro Max? Go ahead, Nick. So uh, it's personal preference. I mean, you definitely need a Pro model iOS device. Those are the only ones that have the LiDAR built into them. Um, I, I find having the one in my phone to be the, the, like, that's, it's always with me. So, you know, I was uh, part of managing a, a pretty big conference uh, a few weeks ago. And so I, when I location scouted the space in April before the, uh, for planning purposes, I was able to LiDAR scan just with the phone. So um, I, 
I guess my preference, if I had to choose between the two, would be to to get the phone because then I'll just know that it's always with me. Um, but it's not necessary. If you know, if if I had a phone that didn't have lidar, uh, and I you know I was due for it, I had other uses for an iPad, I'd probably go with the iPad Pro and um, and just make sure I had it with me anytime I would needed to do any scanning. Yeah, I started with iPads and um, with the iPad because that's what came out first. And I found that the phone was so much easier to wield, you know, like to, to make it to make it work. Uh, Paul? Yeah, I have a Pro Max 14 Pro Max. It works great. I'm using it with the Matterport scanner. And uh, the, for the first time I ever tried to do it, I figured, well, this isn't going to work. I'll just play around with it. And I, I took it around the room, didn't read the instructions. It came out perfect. So uh, you can do great stuff with uh, 14, any any model 14. Next, next I will question. note, oh, go I was, ahead. before the next question, I was just going to note that one of the big utilities of the iPad form factor is that it's much easier to show others what you've just scanned. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, scenarios where I'm going on site and there's somebody responsible for that site, like, what, so what is it that you're doing here? You know, it's much easier to show somebody what you're doing with a large screen of the iPad. Uh, but if it's just for, for my own use, then either one works fine. Next question. From Paul Wallace in Austin, Texas, and right here in our panel, can Matterport scans be exported to Unreal Engine? And what's the workflow to do that? So you have to subscribe to Matterport's, uh, you know, subscription service in order to do that. Uh, but then you're able to upload your Matterport scans to their cloud service and ultimately export them in transferable formats. I forget what formats they support, but I expect OBJ is one of them. But you can't do it with just the scanner, like just the camera scanner device. Like you have to have their subscription service in order to do that uh, file transfer. I think the big advantage of Matterport is is the fact that it it's keeping track of it and stitching those back together into a tour. So like when you when you shoot, I find myself missing that when I'm not when I don't use the Matterport is that you are now kind of having to figure out how to stitch them all together. What Matterport's really good at is if you take your phone and you take that little head head that they have, you can go through it and it it's like the older box that I used to own. Um, so I used to have like a five thousand dollar Matterport that we would take to places before we had a real scanner and we would just go through it. And even now it's easier <laughs> to use the Matterport. If I want to build a tour of a location, it was easier to use a Matterport than it was to use like a BLK 360. There's a lot more work to be done, um, you know, on the BLK than it is on the Matterport. And there is a, there was some kind of conversion. I think, I don't think it continued, but there was a conversion for a while where BLK 360 could extend what the Matterport does because the Matterport itself, the hardware is not very good at... Um, Outdoor, but the phone. Yeah, is fine. Leica's like, like added a lot of fun functionality to the BLKs and and their entire suite. Like, so they even have now a drone mounted version of that. Yeah. Um, and and so their software has actually gotten quite good at being able to stitch those things together. And I mean, but those you know the those are thousands of dollars. And so you know, yeah, absolutely. If I um, had that budget, or if I was working on a project with a, with a budget that supported that, that would be the way to go. Or even just going somewhere like I, I you know, I can't take that everywhere. So being mm -hmm. able to just have something that's in my pocket that I can pull out and grab some data is pretty, pretty useful. Courtney? 
I was going to ask about uh, these handheld, these small like Matterport or these smaller handheld scanners. Uh, the, do they actually use a LIDAR time of flight LIDAR? Or do they use a projected infrared pattern and then gauge the pattern's reflection off of the uh, off of the object uh, to to gauge? Or does it use just photogrammetry where it just doesn't project anything onto the object itself? And I have another question about drones, but answer. <laughs> If you can answer the first question first. I, I would say in, in the case of the iOS device, pro devices, they're using... Well, they're using genuine, time of flight LiDAR. Yeah, right? they're but using I'm talking time about of flight. The, the other handheld uh, that have two camera, two sensors. Uh, there's a, you know, a wide you know variety. What? I, I, don't know, I don't know about Matterport. I mean, definitely the BLK and, you know, the Leica LiDARs mm -hmm. are... are genuine time of flight LiDAR. Um, I never really looked into... I don't have a Matterport, one of those big boxes mm -hmm. so I, but i my impression is that it is lidar and the other question is when you're doing a drone photography uh for uh scanning the outside of the house does it incorporate the uh gps data the metadata from the drone's flight actual flight its positional data height and uh gps i i, I think it's possible but it it i it, i my solutions were not doing that. So when I was running the drones through the um, the, the capturing reality software, it was not using GPS data. Um, and actually, you know, there this is solving more based on the image. It's solving, it's solving based purely on the based on the image. And there's there's right. far more detail in the images than there is in uh, GPS data. So, uh, and the, the accuracy is much higher when you're, you know, the, the, the machine learning uh, tool set is able to differentiate between like the different patterns of colors around these leaves and such. And so, you know, it's able to, to be extremely accurate. Um, Whereas GPS is going to be accurate to within several inches at best. Yeah, and and there's we'll spend some time talking about RTK drones and somewhere in the future so that they can get pretty accurate. Uh, next question, Douglas Carmichael asking Nick. It's incredible how responsive the NDI feed is from your iPad. How are you getting that such uh, smooth video? I'd think Wi-Fi would be a lot laggier. Uh, Wi-Fi might be a lot laggier. I'm not using Wi-Fi. So um, this is actually, I wonder if I can switch my camera here. Okay, so I'm I'm like really small in here and my iPad is here and my uh, MacBook is here and they are both connected to Ethernet. And um, this is using, this is a Kensington uh docking station for the iPad. And so it's it's got all the hardware connectors in the back. I could even HDMI out the, the iPad over to the uh, ATEM here on the desk as well if I wanted to. But um, so that's how it's working. Next question. Paul Wallace in Austin, Texas. Any tips for a Matterport workflow where you've cycling models in and out of offline archival storage? I don't know if you've dug that deep into it i think i mean i think the way to manage that is to i don't think nick, nick i don't think nick does enough no i'm, I'm a, i mean basically yeah the, if if you get their base level subscription you're only able to store so many models uh, in your yeah. in your cloud account and so yeah i mean basically you would want to you know get your scan in get it uploaded processed and get all of that data back out 
processed and in your standardized file formats, as well as you should be able to, in theory, get all of the imagery that the cameras captured as well, and then have that away. But I don't know that you will ever be able to re-upload that, um, you know, from its processed format. Like you might have probably have to re-upload. And they, and they have more sources. expensive subscriptions that would then let you keep more of them yeah. up there. So I think that'd probably be the answer. I mean, if you really want to use the Matterport stuff, other, other than just passing it through. Most of the time when, we re, when we've used Matterport, we do exactly what Nick's talking about. We scan it, we export it, <laughs> and then we delete it. You know, it's, it's, all, it's only in that system for a minute, but we're not using any of the Matterport tools. We're just trying to get the scans out of it. It's just, it's a nice organized way to grab things, you know, for that, for that process. Um, next question. Douglas Carmichael, uh, could the same real-time display analytics concepts be applied to medical imaging data, CT, MRI, for example, if you could get the data into Unreal? Could you see Unreal Unity being part of medical imaging pipelines? It's certainly possible. And I mean, you wouldn't even need something as powerful as Unreal for that. Um, uh, you know, technically, your your CT scans and, and such are just pixel data and, and they're slices, right? So that can be processed by a tool like Houdini, for example, that could turn that right. into voxel geometry, meaning, you know, instead of pixels, it's volumes instead of pixels. Um, and and then you've got a three-dimensional construct that you can work with. So, uh, and there's specialized medical software that does do that. So, you know, the first, the very first um, medical, like like high-end medical models that we used to use. We used to use a heart, and a, we had I, I had to do these visualizations with hearts and with livers and other things. And and uh, the way that they did that was they they had someone who was willing to be paid to give up their body after they passed. Um, and they, and they literally froze them and then took off a millimeter at a time taking pictures. And then they had people sitting there by hand drawing, you know, drawing outlines around the the different organs and identifying them. I, I actually was in the office one time when they were doing, they're sitting there with like a, a, a slice of a person and they're sitting there and they have to, what they had to do is trace each piece. And this is probably, no, this is 30 years ago, but they had to trace each piece and then they, um, and then they would identify what everything was. It was a painstaking process, and it took them years with multiple people to do it. But then they ended up with all these models that we used until I mean, I think we still use them. I mean, uh, like the really high end uh, scans, uh, really high end models that we that a lot of us use for visualization. It's not the, a specific person, but it's good if you're trying to show a heart. Uh, next question. From John Richardson in Florida, John asks, is all the free software any good to do these days? Um, what software is absolutely a must-have, and what kind of price tag can we expect to produce these results? So, How much is Reality Capture? It's so Reality Capture has a um, price per input pricing model. So you can download the software for free, fully capable, and even do the photogrammetry and, and get well, the price per the output, results. right? So you can, you can... No, it's price per input. So that's oh, what's interesting. interesting. And so, so you would license effectively the results across the, the resolution of all these images. And so I think I might have looked at it and I think this house, like this scan of the house was less than $5 if I wanted, had that model. I mean, I have... Um, you can also 
pay it's a little over a thousand dollars i think for just like a permanent license and you just use it um and and so that's the version that i have but the the price per input ppi is extremely accessible like you could you could scan somebody's whole head and face and it'd be like less than $2. And I think this house was would, right. would have been less than $5. And so each what happens is that you um, license the processing data from these images. And then at that point, you can export this in any number of the formats and use it in all sorts of ways. And, and that's, and, and so that like you could edit this and change it, etc. And so you can make as many outputs as you like. It's you've, you've essentially licensed the the processing of these images yeah and um uh, metashape i think you can you can download the demo it'll work forever it just can't export anything you know then you have to buy the buy that to export it out and that hasn't been um too painful i, I always tell people when they should learn is learn that way just don't export anything just just do it because i think this one yeah. you don't pay for it until you want to export something right i mean it's, it's price exactly. per input but exactly. you don't pay until so you could learn how to use reality capture without Without having to pay without anything. a single penny, exactly, and and the results, like again, this is this is Unreal Engine, right? And if I was doing location scouting, that's one of the examples that I was kind of throwing in here is that I added a cinema camera, and I like let's say I wanted to do a shot on that porch, yeah. I can frame up the shot the way I want it, you know, select my lens. I think I've got like a fifty millimeter lens or something yep. like that, you know, adjust my focus and aperture, and you know, I can visualize all of that, and then when I'm done, I can actually find the the exact location of that camera relative to my reference origin here right and and that's in centimeters like i haven't parented it yet at this point in the video and and all of this unreal engine is 100 percent free for commercial use forever uh so really for now i feel like that can't last like it's a a good idea they they make their money other ways it's just not their thing um i mean you can download the source code and write your own software and other people like you you look at uh you know zero density and Mm -hmm. and and, they're all doing uh, a few others they're all doing their own versions but anyway so these results absolutely you know, I used Maya for uh my 3D modeling assembly just because I'm familiar with it but Blender would be every bit as capable of doing that at, you know at no cost. Next question. Ed Willick from Grand Rapids, Michigan. For someone new to lidar, what are the commonly used scanners and their ballpark price points? Uh so you're 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 basically looking at. I mean, it starts to scale up. So uh, there is a really small scanner. I don't think it's very good. That I mean, BLK, the BLK. There's like a little one that's like six thousand dollars, and I think it's mostly just photogrammetry, and which would be very hard for it to use. The BLK uh, 360 version two, I think, is about twenty k, um, and that's where you really start having a true lidar scanner. Um, there's some handheld ones that are in the fifteen to twenty thousand. These are little. They they they'll you can scan things, and that can be convenient inside of a factory experience and so on and so forth. Then as you go up, you're going to probably start getting into the Pharaohs. The Pharaoh 350 is really popular. And I think it's in the, depending on how you have it set up, somewhere between 35 and 50,000. And then above that, you have, there's a, some other Leicas that are a little bit more expensive. There's also a ZNF. Uh, the ZNF is probably the most expensive one I've used. And it's about 85,000. I've never owned one, <laughs> but I've used one. Um, and it it's incredible. I mean, it's accurate to... Um, you know, I don't know. I, I think it's accurate to half an inch at 500 feet or something like that. It's it's a really incredible, um, uh, you know, and it shoots you know a couple million points a second. So it's so it is a uh, 
Uh, anyway, so that's those are the that's kind of the range. Um, again, for a lot of the stuff, especially when you're doing previs and so on and so forth, I find the BOK is a pretty good is a pretty good solution. I use that. Um, it's a it's software is really tricky. So it's it's the, the, getting things on and working with it is is a, difficult. Um, the the Faro 350 is the first one that you really feel like you have a pro, <laughs> professional scanner um, that does a really good job. Um, next question. John Richardson in Florida. Have you done any 3D prints of these models? Nick? I, I haven't yet, but I do have a, uh, I'm pretty sure my sister wouldn't watch the show. So um, I have a, a, a pet project that I, I want to, she has a, a getaway cabin in the Pocono Mountains. And I want, I've, I've done a drone flight. I've 3D modeled it. My intent is to 3D print it and make a snow globe of it. So um I guess I got to get on that if I'm going to get that done in time <laughs> as, a, yeah. as a Christmas gift. <laughs> I uh, I printed a statue. I thought it was kind of a funny thing to do. I, I took a, a Shona sculpture and used photogrammetry to, to capture it and then printed it just to see if I could print it. Obviously, the printed version was not nearly as nice as the real piece of stone, but uh, it was an interesting way to kind of think about, you know, those processes because one of the things I was interested in is the idea that uh, that you could have an artist who knows how to do one thing build something that's in their vision. They don't know how to build the other thing and they could theoretically then do that. But I I found it easier to just give the artists um, ZBrush. <laughs> so anyway, next question. Douglas Carmichael asking, what would you uh, recommend for learning Unreal Engine 5? Would the Epic first hour training be the best place to start? I mean, that's certainly a great place to start. And I think that focus on basically just getting a, adjusted to what it does. That first hour will show you how to how to use the navigation tools, what what each of these little panels is about. Um, there's a thing called the marketplace that is it's both a website is also built into the Unreal Engine launcher. So you could browse and download free scenery to get started with and just start moving things around and getting accustomed to it. That's usually when I'm teaching, I'll take a very similar approach uh, as that that initial hour. And I usually teach folks about moving the camera around and adjusting the camera. And uh, so, you know, definitely that first hour is a great place to start. Last question. From Paul Wallace, right here on our panel and in Austin, Texas. Can you evaluate my setup for Matterport scans? Good, Paul. Yeah, this is the uh, setup here. This this is the uh, Matterport scanner. That's the top. This is this is the case that it comes in. It's a really cool case. It's got a great and Nick, have manual. you used the scanner? Huh? Have you used the setup, Nick? Have I've used it. No, oh, no, no, I haven't Nick. used yeah, the setup. Nick. Yeah. Looks and good. then I have the, the main thing is the tripod. I want you to evaluate this as the tripod. It's a monopod and it has a thing here. You can unscrew this and the feet come out. So uh, w w just give me an evaluation and tell me how I can progress with uh, Matterport to the next level. I would The one suggestion I would have right off the bat, though, is um, maybe use a light stand with a quarter 20 on the top to, and rather than the a monopod. Um, the, the monopod tripod, even though those are usually, they should be steel feet, um, it, it's still going to be 
uh, less stable than than a light stands tripod. Um, yet the tri the light stand tripod is going to be less obtrusive than a genuine photography tripod. So the photography tripod is going to have the legs come together very close to the camera, um, whereas a light stand the tripod is it's much lower. But you'll get a, a better base for that apparatus to sit on. Um, I haven't used this Matterport setup now. It when when you've got that set up, do you just hit go and then it kind of like robotically just does its pan and scan on its own without interruption? Yeah, it doesn't uh, like the matter. Pretty much, yeah, it just it's yeah. off to the races. And then you move from spot to spot. And I, I think mm -hmm. there's some kind of scientific way of where you position yourself and the distance between the spots that you use. What do you recommend, say, for a a thousand square foot space. How many different shots would you take, Nick? Well, I, I mean, I would do a minimum of five, one from each corner and then in the center of a space like that, a min that at minimum. Um, it could also be a grid of, uh, I suppose you could do a grid of four where you're not, you're not putting yourself into the corner, but you're, you're keeping yourself several feet from each, the walls of each corner. And, and so you're scanning each corner area. Then also, um, again, I prefer to get the center as well to kind of bring it all together. Um, that might be overkill though. And then, and the, uh, this is the one that I use for a lot of that kind of thing, the lighter stuff. This is the um, ProMaster, I believe makes this and it's a light, uh, it's a light stand. It's like an L, I can't read it here. Hold on. I can't find it. Oh, this is it. The L... LSCT, LS-CT. Um, and um, this one unfolds, it folds up and it fits into a carry-on, which is important for me. Uh, it unfolds and when the, the the center goes up pretty high, so it gets away from the thing, it's easier to paint out. And um, and then, and I've used this all over the world. So I would, I would highly recommend it. It's only about 80 bucks. Um, and uh, we have one more question rolling in. Okay, it's uh, from John Fisher in Oklahoma City, Oklahoma. Where can someone get training to do this type of work for real estate and location scouting? I think the internet's here. We're going we're gonna to do more doing stuff. I don't know if Nick has a specific answer to that one. I mean, um, I don't know what it's like these days. Um, I used to do that. That was one of my spackle, you know, side gigs while I was working and breaking into feature films is like, oh, I, I can do, I, and, and this was before Matterports were around. It was just pure spherical photography. Um, and uh, I would shoot HDRs and, and there was a service company that um, I basically contracted for and, and they would just send me out and depending on how many rooms and spaces I was shooting, like the, that was the approach that, that I did because the, the real estate companies had relationships with the um, the service agency, and so and then the service agency would just send me out to a bunch of houses, and I'd upload the results, and everybody was happy. I think the one thing to watch in this space is nerfs. When it comes to real estate, nerfs are going to be a huge deal because they don't edit very well, but they do. They're very easy to capture and generate compared to a lot of the other things. So it'll be really interesting to see how that goes. Thanks, Nick. Thank you for your time. Thanks for having here. me. This was great. Was yeah, so we'll uh, we'll have Nick on again sometime soon, hopefully. Uh, and it's really, really great to have you. And, and good luck with the new school season. <laughs> I think it's just getting started, right? You're just just starting to ramp up. It, getting getting ramped up. Yeah, I 
we start our classes at the end of September, but I'm definitely, you know, there's always new technologies coming out. I need to learn them to teach them. So <laughs> it's busy. Absolutely. And uh, thanks to the uh, to the producers for all the great uh, questions that kept this hour running and the hour before it. Uh, thanks to the panelists. We can't do this without you, of course. And uh, so I really appreciate your contribution here. And uh, thanks to the incredible team on the back end that makes this happen. Uh, there's a team that's producing the show. There's a team that's managing the show. There's a team that's developing tools for the show. And uh, without which, we'd still be back in a Zoom webinar. <laughs> so, so anyway, so we've come a long way and it's all of your fault. So so anyway, so thank you so much for your contribution. Um, and uh, we've traveled in this day, uh, we've traveled um, 36,000 miles, that's uh, 59,000 kilometers, 290 million bananas for scale. All right, let's go ahead and jump into after hours. Everyone's going to have to keep their eye out for the Alex listener. I'm almost done with it. I got a little speaker, I got a dedicated computer. Had almost had it working yesterday. So, joined us uh, for the show workshop uh, today at twelve uh, Pacific, oh, yeah. three uh, Eastern. Yes. What Mitchell? Blue nerfs call snurfs. 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 Uh. Uh. So much drama in, snur in the Smurfs. Alex, you should reach out to Mike, see if Mike can come on and talk about nerfs. Yes, that is a good idea. Soon. He's the Papa Nerf. Yes, Papa Nerf. <laughs> Someone's do 